that expression, um, Hosanna. It was used to, I mean, we don't, we don't use it very often other than in the song, but it was used to express this deep, profound longing for Jesus to come back. Um, it struck me that uh, uh, I don't often feel that way, you know, and and I find so, that um, that this world provides everything that I think I need. Um, that I feel like this world is sufficient, that I can get what I need, whether that's in relationships or friends or work or whatever, or money or comfort, entertainment. I mean, you name it. Like, I, And I, I think we, we all get trapped into that. I think we all start to think that this world is sufficient for us, that, that we can find, like if we have a need, we can fill that need. We can find something that sufficiently fills it. And it's just totally bogus. It's just not true, right? And we know this. Deep down we know this to be true. We know that it's all fake, that it's temporary, that it's fleeting. And yet... <laughs> We're just unconvinced that every time, it's like we're, we're so dumb. Every time we go back, we're like, well, this time it's going to be different, right? I'm not the only one, right? Um, and so this morning, we're going to be talking about the sufficiency of God's word. Um, and it's probably as we step through the inspiration of God's word it's inerrancy, it's authenticity, it's authority, and then last week Brian spoke about its necessity. All those are good, and, they're, and like I said, as we kind of walked through a lot of them, they were, they were fairly academic. Um, but when we get to sufficiency, this is where it crushes our hearts. This is where we're really challenged. This is, this is like... You know, everything else has been the, the foundation being laid for us to say that truly God's word is a sufficient guide for us in this life and for the life to come. And that's a big step. And it's one that, that there's a lot of reasons we don't take that step into, into saying that this is sufficient. And, and if you start thinking through in your minds, like, where do you go when you have a need where do you go when you don't know the answer? Where do you go when you need help? Where do you go when you need comfort? Where do we go? Because for me, it's not here. I know I'm supposed to say that, that for me it is, right? And for you guys it's not. But it's, that's not true. We're all in this together and this is not where, this is not my go-to. I don't go to this going, this is sufficiently going to give me my answers. And yet we're going to see as we walk through this, it does. 
It is. It just takes us time to get there. And usually it's when we've run out of options. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Jonathan, one of the pastors here, if you're a guest, welcome. I'd love to say hi to you if I didn't get to, get to say hi on the way in. But um, let's spend the next few minutes dwelling on that. Just let that percolate in your mind right now. Do I see Scripture as sufficient? Because what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through this, and I'm going to prove to you that, that God intends this to be our sole source of sufficiency in this world. That he intends for this to be your go-to. That he intends to provide you with every single answer to every problem, every circumstance that you have ever encountered and you will ever encounter. And that's my prayer this morning, that we would walk out of here seeing this, seeing God's holy scriptures in a new light. Let me start by praying. God, we come before you undone by our sin and we just confess, Father, that, that we don't that many of us don't see this see your word in the right light and that we go to all these other things and so I pray Father this morning as we as we dive into your word that you would make it new that you would refresh our minds help us to think correctly help us to know your will for our lives and most of all God may we see your love in providing us your word because it does testify to your unfailing love to us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your son. We thank you for all that you have done and continue to do in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The Bible's sufficient. That's, that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> it's sufficient. God intended his word to be sufficient. And it makes sense if we've laid the foundation, right? If, if God inspired the writers of the Bible and that he intended it to be an authority in our lives, we've already, we've already gone through this. If you haven't gone back and like watched all of these, I would encourage, they're all on YouTube, go back and step through these because I think that it's gonna be beneficial to kind of walk through this because at some point in here, you may be like, well, I don't know that I, I, I believe the first step you took. Well, you, We've been building up to this, right? And so this, is, this has been a build. And so when we look at that and we, we look at God's intention to preserve, um, to keep, tr to, to, that this would be his indwelling truth of God inerrant, it logically proceeds from that that it's sufficient. If God, let's go the opposite direction. Let's say it wasn't sufficient. What does that tell us about God? If God withheld information from us for us to live our life, if, if God withheld information from us on how to reach eternal life and to dwell with him, what does that tell us about God? It would tell us that he's not good. It would tell us that he doesn't really love us. 
It would tell us that he's powerless because he, he either intentionally withheld information or he unintentionally withheld information, neither of which are plausible given the characteristics of who God is. You guys with me on this? You see what I mean? So, so if he withheld information from us, if this was actually insufficient, and he goes, well, you got to figure out the secret code to get more information. What kind of a God does that make him? But what we see in Scripture that that's not true. That's not who our God is. And so his sufficiency that he has provided us with everything we need in here, logically, not emotionally yet, we'll get to the emotional stuff here in a bit. I mean, I already did, I guess. But like, like logically, it must proceed that, he, that God's word is sufficient. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to a, our, our favorite verse as we've been walking through the Bible. 2 Timothy 3. 16, and we're going to read it again, but it's going to be for a different emphasis point here, right? So listen to what he says in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Brian talked about all that last week. Look at how necessary it is in our lives. It's necessary in this area. It's necessary in this area. It's necessary here. But then look at what he says. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You guys with me here? They're complete, fully equipped. He doesn't say you're going to have a few good tools to help you out. They might work. They might not. You might need more. He doesn't say that. He says that you're going to be complete, fully equipped. He's given you all the tools, everything that you need to build the house, to build your life, to glorify God, to know his righteousness, to see Jesus for who he is, to have faith and trust in his sacrifice for our sins. Everything. That's what he says here. Complete and equipped. Jesus teaches us in the parable, uh, I don't know what the title of it is, the, the parable of the, I don't know, whatever. Those names aren't actually in the Bible, right? So uh, the parable of the two houses, I don't know what it is. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. And you guys are probably familiar with this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, the rock is what? Jesus' words. Jesus' words are contained where? Holy Scripture, right? Okay, so that's, that's the first part. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Okay, what's the house here? The house is our lives. You guys good on the metaphor here, right? He's saying like, like if you have this foundation that is Jesus' words, right, and then we build our houses. And if our houses are built on a solid foundation, okay, this doesn't really work in Florida, but for the most part, like if you could dig down, you could find rock eventually, right? What do we do in place of it? We put in concrete right? 
I even have, we have like a raised subfloor. It's an older house. But even that is in concrete, right? Like there's concrete um, footings. Thank you. Whoever said that. Hey, yeah. Footings, right? So there's always concrete. And you go and you see like a, a, a piece of property that's being built. You see a slab there, right? Generally. And it stays there for some time. And I remember when uh, Melissa and I, we, um, like our very first house, they were building in this like subdivision in Panama City. And I remember like, I was really concerned about the foundation. I'm like, they need to keep it wet. They need to keep it wet. You know, but we weren't there. We were in a different state. And so I was very concerned with the quality of the foundation because it's important. And this is what Jesus is saying. The foundation is really important. And this is what Brian talked about last week. It's necessary. If you start with sand, it's not going to work out well for you. We all know this all too well, right? So then what? What after the foundation? Could you just throw a tent on it? a little cardboard lean-to, and Jesus says, well, you're on Jesus, you're on the words of Jesus, so you can do whatever you want after this. It's going to last. Why why does the metaphor break down there? Doesn't it? Because all he's talking about about is about about the foundation. But what about the building? There's code. (laughs) It's got to attach to that foundation well. There's some really important pieces to this, Jesus. Did you miss all of that? You see, what we find is that Scripture actually talks about that. And it, his, that's not the point of his metaphor here. But the house that we built, the lives that we built, he provides us with the architectural drawings. He provides us with the guidance for how to build our house on the foundation, which is Jesus' words. That's what I'm going to walk through as we keep going through this. But that's the point as he does this. And look at where we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, so, so God has a very specific guidance in your life. He goes, no, 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 you should make the best use of your time. If you've got a Bible, circle the word best. How in the world do we know that? God expects us to make the best use of our time. Just let that one sit for a second. I think right there we all kind of go, ooh. What is he saying? Not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom. And then what does he say? Um, Understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, God's expectation here is that we would have wisdom, to make the best use of our time, and to understand God's will. Well, that's great, Jonathan. But how? (laughs) How do I know what God's will is? How do I know what's the best use of my time? God planned the sufficiency of his word. God planned this. God established his word so that you can answer those questions. As we get to the end of this, we're going to answer some of these questions, okay? So I'm leading us up to this. But look at, look at how I, I've never read 
I'll talk about this a little bit more later too, but I've never read this, God's word in, in, in this way as I was kind of preparing for this. But if you turn over to John chapter 16, listen to what Jesus says here. And these are, these are really um, remarkable verses here. This is, so this is in the upper room, right? This is Jesus, as we go through the book of John here starting next week, um, he's talking to his disciples. This is like his passion week. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's talking to them. And he spends basically chapters 13 through, I think, 17 or 18, talking to the disciples. And this is what he says in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. Underline that word still. But you cannot bear them now. Underline the word now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus didn't personally teach the disciples everything they needed to know. Did you know that? That's what he says. I, I would have never made that statement prior to this last week. But this is clearly what Scripture says, isn't it? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not thinking something wrong here. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus is like, <laughs> you're done. You're at capacity. And in fact, you can go through Scripture and you can see all sorts of stuff where when Jesus comes back, he opens up the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. He walks with the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus and he explains to them from the scriptures, right? Like people didn't get all of it. But he says, you still didn't get it. What was God's plan for revealing everything that people needed to know? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was gonna come in and speak to the disciples, carry them along, inspire them to tell us what? Um, declare the things that are to come. Now back up to John chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus speaking again to them. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, the Holy Spirit finishes the work that Jesus was doing. By what? Revealing God's word to us. Revealing his inerrant truth to us. Right? This is what we get. And we see uh, in 2 Peter, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes, by, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see that, that God intended this to be sufficient. He didn't just go, hey, you get three years with Jesus, and then after that, figure the rest out. He didn't. He said the Holy Spirit's going to come in and continue to carry along and inspire the writers of Scripture to give us all that is necessary Turn over to, uh, or back up to verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Through God's power, he's given us everything that pertains to life. That's like here, that's the house. And godliness, that's eternal life, right? That's dwelling with God in eternity. That's trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But look at what the next word is. Through, through what? The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you see this? What he says here is that God has given us everything we need. Everything we need for life, for godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of his promises. And what does he do? What's the result of that? We become partakers of the divine nature. That means, that means like we're, we're part of it. Like, like we're with God in some very relational sense, a very intimate relationship. How? Why? Because we just, what we just saying, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's it. That verse absolutely crushes me every time I sing it. Because it, that's not true in my life. I want it to be true. But my heart breaks for things that it shouldn't. And it doesn't break for things that it should. Why? Because of sinful desires? And so what does he say? Scripture is going to reveal to you who I am and my promises, and you will become partakers of the divine nature. You will now have the same affections in increasing measure throughout your life that God has. You will love the things he loves. You will hate the things that he hates. And what happens? We escape sinful desires. That's it. It's how this works. It's not some mystic thing. You don't need to like be in a seance or like, you know, like clear your mind or, you know, there's no crazy stuff. It just, it makes sense because this is the holiness of our God. And the more time we are reading his words, reading his truth, pouring in, praying to him, seeing his promises, seeing his love for us and his grace, going to change the way we look at life. It's going to change our affections. It's going to change our thought patterns. It's going to make us partakers of the divine nature. That's the promise he has for us. So how does he do this? God's word is alive. How? Well, I was going to ask a question, but I won't. I just said it, right? Sometimes you read scripture and you're like, I've read that before, but I've never read that before. Am I with, you with me? And you read it and you're like, that was exactly what I read in John. I was like, wow, I never thought of that. How does that happen? How does it happen that you can read the same thing five years from now and you're gonna get something different out of it? 
And we don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but we do know that in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 12, this is a very often quoted verse. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That last part, the intentions of the heart, that's what changes. (laughs) That's why five years from now, when you read that scripture, the intentions of your heart might be a little bit different. You might be in a different circumstance. You might be thinking differently about stuff. You might be dealing with stuff. And all of a sudden, God's word dynamically, actively lives and speaks into your Context. You see, this is, the, this is the biggest sham that people lie about this, is that they say that this is an old book. That it was written to people thousands of years ago, in a different time, in a different place, in a different geography, in a different culture. Therefore, it cannot apply to a 21st century modern people just like us. It's... We're too highbrow for something like this. It's beneath us. It's old. I've had many conversations with people that think that. It's an archaic book from primitive people. It's not what Hebrews says. And you can go back to all the other sermons that we've talked about, that inspiration, inerrancy, and authenticity, and all of those other reasons why we, we believe that that's not true. But let's just take that as a foundation. That this is, in fact, God's inspired word. And it is, in fact, living and active. Wouldn't that make it sufficient? Wouldn't that mean that in, for all people, in all places, at all times, God will use it sufficiently to guide them into life and all godliness? Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't pieces and parts in here that we go, well, we, we can read and we can see the, the cultural impressions upon this portion of Scripture or whatever, right? That doesn't mean that all of it necessarily translates over. Remember, we talked about it during the inspiration that the writers were still the writers. Like, they still had, they still had their own personalities and desires and things, but God carried them along in the Holy Spirit and inspired these words to be inerrant truths that he preserved for us. And so it's sufficient even today, even thousands of years later. It's still sufficient. Now maybe 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 you take issue with this. And so this is where we're going to we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts here a little bit. And as I was writing this stuff I'm like, man, like I wasn't writing this stuff, right? God wrote this stuff. As I was reading and praying and thinking about this stuff, just for clarity, it's beautiful because it really does answer every need, every problem. It is the place that we can go to. It's sufficient to guide us in obedience. Right? What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? Just pick a topic, right? What's right and what's wrong? 
Do we use some archaic book that talked about right and wrongs from thousands of years ago? Do, how, do we, how do we apply um, the Old Testament laws? Like, how does all this work? I, we, you know, right? And it gets all jumbled up. And, and at some point, we just go, you know what? What does the world do? How does the world answer that question? How do you feel? If it's right for you, then it's right. Are you hurting anybody? Then it's right. That's what the world would say, right? I mean, there might be some things that they're like, yeah, that's probably not the, the best. But for the most part, the world's our oyster from, from, a, from, a, from a, a secular point of view. And so we go, so how do we know then? How do we know what's right or wrong? How do we know, is it right for us to binge watch Netflix? How do we know? Is it right for, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to be too specific here. <laughs> but, I mean, th- these are good questions. And, in fact, like, with my daughters, right, like, we, we start talking about some of these things, like, some of these real questions, real-life stuff. I'm, I mean, this is not a real conversation. Well, it, anyway, uh, I'm just going the wrong direction here. But. <laughs> now you guys are going to imply a bunch of things. All right. In an abstract, non-specific conversation, hypothetically, <laughs> right? Well, how about like marijuana? It's a good contemporary question. Is it right or wrong? Did I just divide the church? <laughs> right? So what about, what about your kids in sports? How much? How often? Is it right or wrong? What about watching R-rated movies? Oh, I sound like I'm from the 80s. Actually, they didn't even, yeah. Right? Is it right or wrong? You see what I mean? Like, like we start tackling all these things. You're like, yeah, wait, wait. obviously the Bible doesn't talk about those things. The Bible doesn't say, don't binge watch Netflix. So how do we use this? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to just practice a couple of these things because I think it's just so incredibly Beautiful. Verse 23, all things are lawful. Oh, sweet. (laughs) Fantastic. This worked out great. This is the best sermon ever. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. I don't know if I added the next verse. Verse 14, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Oh, well, this kind of changes things. So first, what God says is that just because it's lawful doesn't mean you ought to do it. He says that just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's helpful. Helpful for what? Helpful for building what up? God's kingdom, yourself. In fact, the next verse has each other. You ever thought about that? Your decision about right and wrong impacts the person behind you. That's a tough one. We don't live in communities. We're trying, but we we are very individualistic in our culture. And we go, 
right or wrong, that's a, that's a me problem. No. Let each, he ties this in. Let each one seek the good of his neighbor. What do we read in Matthew chapter 18? Let's just use an example of this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Your decision of right and wrong, where you draw that line, impacts others. Because people see where you draw the line, and they go, that's a good place for me to draw the line. What if you're wrong? Are you wrong? Are you okay with it? I mean, let, let's forget about all the verses that, that talk about just causing our brothers to stumble, right? You see, our decision between right and wrong isn't so much like, do we break some sort of code that God then levies judgment on us? It's not that. It's what's best. What's the most helpful are you intent on building my kingdom? Are you intent on caring and loving for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you intent on reflecting Christ to this world? Because if you go out of these doors and you draw that line between right and wrong in some fashion that maybe demonstrates hypocrisy, what does that show the world? And this has been the reputation of our church. Not, not our church, the church, Right? This is the reputation of the church. Am I, am I right? Hypocrites. Congratulations. Welcome to the club. We're all hypocrites, right? And frankly, it's because we do things like that. We draw these lines. We go, well, it's good for me right now. I don't want to get too far into that. But, but the point of this is, is this sufficient to guide us into what is right and what is wrong? Or do we need to go somewhere else? Do we model after the world? Do we just go, well, as long as I feel good about it, it's okay? No, what God says is, is it helpful and are you harming each other? Are you showing love? Are you intent on building my kingdom? That's what he says. So now put that under the constraints. Now make your decision between right or wrong. Spend time in God's word. Spend time in prayer. Get the affections of God. Pursue and go, does God want me to do this? Is God happy with this? Is this something that God would do or not do? That's how we refine our obedience. It's also sufficient in our decisions. The amoral stuff. I was just talking about this with somebody, right? Changing jobs, changing schools, moving, taking a promotion. Anything, right? Any, all of those things are amoral. There's no, there's no morality to them. There's no like, you should not ever change jobs, right? Like, there's no moral part to that. So these are just decisions. How in the world can this archaic book speak to our decision-making process? How, how, how could it possibly address all the nuances of my life situation and what's going on? Does, does God know my pros and cons list? Ready for this one? Turn over to Jeremiah 17.9. So as we're trying to figure out this, we're trying to figure out what the right decision is, what does God's word tell us? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay. Um, well, I really wanted that promotion. I really thought I should move, and I really thought I should do these things, but my 
heart is apparently deceitful. Turn over to Proverbs. Chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because your heart's jacked up. It's like, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. What does it mean by acknowledging God? It means going, I want your will, God. I don't want my will. I, like, I, I want this, and I think I've got good reasons for wanting this. But refine me, because I doubt myself. I doubt my own intentions. We're really good at making things look spiritual when they're not, aren't we? We're really good at making decisions and saying, oh, here's the, here's the God part about this, but really it's just our own sinful desires that are pursuing it because our hearts are incredibly deceitful to us. So, so at least at the, at the very outset, God goes, question yourself. It's amoral, but what are your motives? What are your motives? And this is what he does. And then he tells us what we should do. Go to Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Nope. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Sorry. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Those are all these amoral decisions, right? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Think about this for a second. God knows that you need to make a decision. He knows this. He even knows the desires of your heart that you maybe don't recognize. So what does he say in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's beautiful. What's your motive? Seek first his kingdom. Pursue God's kingdom. Pursue his righteousness. Whatever that decision is, are, are you pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness? Because if you are, the rest will just fall in order. It's okay. You're good. You don't have to worry about it. There's some risk in that, isn't there? That can be scary. That can be really scary ground because we may not feel equipped or we may be nervous about it. We may feel like we're missing out on an opportunity. Or we may feel like we're just unsettled. And we go, oh, I just don't know that this is what God wants me to do. Then don't do it. Then don't do it. Seek his righteousness. Does this build up his kingdom? Does this declare the glory of God? Does it point to Jesus Christ? Because if so, God's going to be all about it. If you can't find anything that's glorifying to God in your decision, I think you have your answer. And it's sufficient to comfort. His words sufficiently comfort us. How do we deal with the chaos that naturally is going to ensue in our lives? The speed bumps, the roadblocks, 
the, the brokenness of this world. It's despairing. It's difficult. What does the world do? What's the world's answer to the chaos, to tragedies? It says, buckle down. Try to make sure it doesn't happen to you. And by the way, if you get enough money and enough resources, you can secure stuff so that things like that don't happen. That's what the world says, right? That we can, we can create our own safety net. We can put enough security stuff around us. And that's how the world solves the problem of chaos. That's how the world solves the problem of its own brokenness. It goes, we'll just try really hard. We'll grin and bear it. We'll fight against it. That last one is huge because the world does fight against everything that's happening that they don't like. You know, I don't like this. Okay, let me, let me try to make it stop. Let me try to minimize the effects of it. But what does God's sufficient word say? Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Even our prayers are jacked up. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, in, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So you have God... And this is if you're a follower of Christ, if you place your trust in Christ, you have God interceding on your behalf. As you're mulling about in this world, trying to stay, keep your head above water, trying to just survive, basically. We have the Holy Spirit that's interceding for us. And then verse 28, probably the one that Hopefully you have it underlined in your Bible, maybe even memorized. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So the world's going, stop it, limit the effects, try to make this go away. I don't want things to happen to me that I don't plan. We read scripture that says God's going to do stuff in your life, but it's for your good. You see the totally different perspective. This is why we say this is sufficient. Because God goes, I'm doing something in your life. Don't fight it. Reflect. Repent. This is how our God works. And so you see that as you start dealing with the world and the chaos and all these things that are happening, it's not just a matter of survival. It's a matter of us going to God going, what are you teaching me here? How are you disciplining me? He tells us he disciplines us if he loves us. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? I'm going to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15. He says, But in your hearts honor the Christ, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope 
that is in you. You know what happens when we're going through it? The world watches. And the world judges. Frankly, we do a lot of judging too. And we say, what did you do? Who sinned? You or your father? What's going on? What, did you bring this on yourself? Don't we? And the world goes, yeah, apparently your God isn't very powerful because your life is in shambles. That's how the world sees it. So how we endure, how we respond to tragedy and things in our lives, God's word is sufficient. He tells us, be prepared. Be prepared to have a reason for the hope. Be prepared for explaining why in the midst of all of this you can sing Hosanna. Why in the midst of all of this you can be smiling. How in the midst of all of this can you still trust in God? And your response is, because my God is sovereign. Because there's more to this life than just comfort and luxury. There's a, uh, there's a video that we just happened to watch last night. Um, I've, I've heard the name before, but I, I didn't know who it was. Joni Erickson Tata. I think if I was in Christian circles like all my life, I would probably know, know who that was. But anyway, but she was a paraplegic. She became a paraplegic at 17. She dove into a pool, snapped like her neck or whatever. And she has, she just, I think it just came out, this like 12-man thing that talks about how she deals with suffering. She published like a book or something about it. But she wrestles with these things from a very raw perspective. And at times she's smiling not always. And she's really honest. She's like, listen, the, the, I can deal with being a paraplegic. It's the pain. It's the pain that's hard to deal with. And frankly, that's the case in life. As we get older, things happen. And so what does he say? Don't lose your hope. In fact, you get to preach the good news. In your suffering, in the tragedy, that's the opportunity that the world is looking at you going, are you giving up now? Because God's putting you through the ringer. You go, no. Not at all. I have hope. Jesus died for me. There's an e eternity on the line here. This isn't just about these measly little 85 years I got. And so God's word is sufficient. It's entirely sufficient for our lives, for all things. And we could go on and on and on about how we go to this. And each one of you could probably do this. In certain circumstances in your life, you went down this path and you tried to find some answers here. And when they gave up, when they weren't enough, when they didn't last, you turned to this and you found comfort, you found encouragement, you found God's sufficient truth for your life. And we go, praise God. That's what we need to hear about. And that's what we as a community are pointing to each other. Is this decision the right decision? I don't know. What does God say? Have you gone to his word? Because it's sufficient. How are you navigating life? How are you building your house? This is his word. And it's an authority in our lives, but it's not just an authority. 
It's our rescue. The disciples said, where else am I going to go? You have the words of life. It's so easy to see how obviously lacking the world's solution to these problems are. And it really is. And we, we have the truth. We have the good news. That's why it's called the good news. So we're compelled. We're compelled to show this. We're compelled to tell this. We're compelled to say, man, you can't, you wouldn't imagine what God did in my life. You would imagine how he spoke to me through this, his living and active word. Man, I thought that I was making the right decision here, and God just totally told me that that was not the right way. And this is how I, I saw that happen. And it's a testimony, and it's beautiful. And we all have these stories. And if you don't have these stories, let me just encourage you, like, especially if you're new in the faith, you will get them. Sadly, they're not always like you know the skipping, jumping, having fun stories. Sometimes they are, but they're always the God-glorifying story. Let me pray.